welcome to the Discipleship Webcast. My name is Brooke. Tonight I'm here with Robin. Also known as DJ Robin. All right. <laughs> DJ, okay. What are we, okay, last week we started a new series. Yep. We're in week two tonight. Yep. What's the content? What are we going to talk about? So we're talking about first things and second things and the importance of putting first things first mm-hmm. and how when we put second things first, what happens is we lose the first thing that should be first mm-hmm. and the second thing. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to be doing is trying to talk about this idea that we need to move from treasuring opinion to treasuring objectivity. And when we treasure objectivity properly, we can actually value people's opinions more. We're going to talk about how that works. Ooh, sounds good. Of course, lots of notes, so get your notepads ready, and uh, we'll be back in just a sec. I got something I gotta tell you, so get ready for another breakthrough. So let me show you what I mean. What I got is the new thing. Listen up, I'm gonna say it all right now. So we're back with news of the week, and what can we start with, Robin? First up for news, we got our graduates celebration happening next Saturday on May 29th. Next Friday? Next Saturday? May 29th, whatever day that is. Saturday. Forgive me if my day's confused, but uh, on YouTube we'll be streaming, and we'd love to celebrate everyone that's graduating. And of course, your simple churches can participate by baking and handing out uh, cupcakes to celebrate everybody that's graduating. Cool, cool. Also news of the week is the McMaster Student Buddy Program. Really cool opportunity to make relationships with international students and through that invite them to come to know Jesus. Mel is going to drop more information in the chat with how you can find out more if you're interested. Awesome. And tomorrow we have our Welcome Week brainstorming session. Open invite anybody and everybody is welcome to join. We want to make sure that we are listening to the best ideas and creating an environment for creativity to flourish as we look ahead to uh, September and welcoming in a double cohort, biggest ever opportunity that we will ever have to welcome in students this fall. So uh, make sure you guys are ready to uh join tomorrow evening 7 p.m on discord let's go all right time to celebrate this week i heard word on the street is that 24 incoming first years have joined the guelph server really really cool that's awesome and i want to celebrate that we've got a bunch of people signing up for the amazing race that we're doing uh on from may 31st to june 19th uh annie and helena from max c have put together a team and I'm uh, really excited about that. And you can still uh, register for that. Uh, Taylor has posted all the details in uh, on the Discord chats. Awesome. And want to celebrate people just getting to know their neighbors recently. Uh, the Broadway House, shout out to them. They made some cookies recently and invited them over for dinner as well. Yeah. And uh, speaking of getting to know people, we've been having just so much fun this summer, welcoming in a whole new batch of some summer students, our new interns, coordinators, growing the team that supports the behind the scenes at Lyft. Uh, so that we can empower more people to go and make disciples. So you can see some of their beautiful faces on this call here. Man, we have just the most amazing people. 
Facts. And uh, lastly, I just want to celebrate really fruitful conversations happening during SME hours. If you didn't know, those happen during the week. Really cool opportunities. And special shout out to Amy Chang from the York region, just having a passion for the lost and really yeah. wanting to grow that in her Simple Church family. So let us know what else you're celebrating, who you're celebrating in the chat. And uh, I'm going to pass things over to Adrian, Paula, and Stephen. Hi church, I just wanted to celebrate my Simple Church for hosting an awesome careers night last weekend. We had about five people um, come out and three of them that we didn't know. And it was just an awesome time to get to share what we're passionate about and what programs we've done at McMaster and um, yeah, just meet new people. So I just wanna celebrate my Simple Church for coming up with creative ways to just outreach and um, serve people. Hey church, it is the Waterloo family coming at you with the celebration. We are celebrating our simple church who just took a step of obedience and a step of generosity. We had the chance to meet uh, families' needs who needed some extra groceries this week, and we, uh, yeah, we're blessed with the opportunity to buy them and bring them. So, yeah, see ya. <laughs> hey, church fam, it's Adrian from the York region. I just wanted to celebrate our huddle last night as we brainstormed some amazing ideas to come together more often in prayer. Just want to shout out Siobhan, Asumpta, and Dave for the beautiful ideas of having a daily Devo chat and doing Devos together in the mornings, going on prayer walks, and starting our 30 days in prayer. Shout out to you guys for your amazing ideas. We're all so excited to start incorporating them. Hey, I'm here with Matt Matos from the Mohawk region. How's it going tonight, Matt? Good. I'm doing really good. How are you, Brooke? I'm doing well. Pumped to interview and interview you and just hear more about what you're up to for the summer and have our church really hear more about that as well. So why don't we start by hearing what's your role for the summer and how are you serving the church through that? Yeah, so along with Vivian Lee, I'm a Welcome Week assistant. And really our objective is just to make sure Welcome Week goes smoothly. We're prepared for every situation, no matter the what protocols are at the time. Really cool. That's awesome. I love that both of you are stepping into this opportunity for the first time. So that'll be super cool, especially taking your experience and, and kind of what you've, what you've experienced um, as someone who's been a student and really experienced that. What, uh, what are you most excited about for this role? I'm really excited for the challenge that it brings. Uh, Mohawk has a huge amount of commuting students and that's really a big challenge trying to get their attention and trying to reach out to students that are commuting and just being able to tackle whatever challenge each campus brings. Mm. Um, the other one, just learning to have a heart, my heart broken for the loss and reach out to first years and second years who are now coming uh, to a new school or to a new city and just teach them who Jesus is and tell them who Jesus is. Hmm, that's so good, Matt. Teach them and show them who Jesus is. Um, you know, you've touched on some very real practical stuff, but also just coming back to the heart there and just wanting to see how you're going to get that much closer to God through this. So cool. So what are your hopes and dreams for, um, for Welcome Week? And uh, yeah, and as a team, as you kind of step into this. Yeah, so we don't want this just to be one big event. We want to be community focused. We want the church to really buy into Welcome Week. Uh, we want to have students 
in and around all campuses come to know Jesus. We want to serve our communities during this time of transition from going either to a new city or from high school to college or university. And just simply put, we want to have the church, church's hearts broken for first and second year students coming to a new school and a new city. Hmm. I'm like, hear that church, we want, we want our hearts broken. Um, and I love that you've just been including so intentionally those second years that will be coming for the first time. So then as a church family, how can we get behind and really champion Welcome Week as a church, and how can we see students be made fully alive in the hope of Jesus through this Welcome Week? Yeah, so we have really two practical steps. Um, tomorrow at 7 p.m., like Robin was just saying, and on June 4th at noon, we'll be hosting brainstorming sessions. This is just an open invitation for whoever in the church to come and help us generate ideas, whether no matter how big or small they are, just to plan for Welcome Week as we look ahead. Um, the other one is just prayer. Pray for first and second year students that are coming to your region for first time. Pray for their transition and pray just that we'll be able to serve them and extend that grace and love that God really wants to give them. Hmm, that's awesome, Matt. I'm pumped about these brainstorming sessions. I love that as a church, we value the opinions of everyone and what they're going to bring to the table. Um, you know, people have their different experiences. That's going to be so good. And on the note of prayer, just kind of a quick thought here. As the weather's been getting warmer, I find myself just going for those short walks. And often when I walk, I, I spend some time in prayer. And so I've been thinking as, you know, I'm enjoying the sun to start praying for, for our students more. And so, you know, never too early. So just kind of a thing there, but really excited for you and Vivian and uh, to see what this year's Welcome Week looks like. So make sure you put those dates in your calendar and uh, I'm just going to end in a moment of prayer. Jesus, I just thank you for Matt, Vivian, and our church family that is going to intentionally really plan um, just opportunities to create relationships, God. We lift up our first years and our second years as they come to the campuses, Lord, and we just pray that, um, yeah, that that hearts would be softened in this time, God. And um, we pray that as a church, our hearts would keep breaking and breaking, Lord. And I just pray for an excitement that to stir um, just all the way over the next few months, God, into September and just as it grows over the year to come, Lord. Um, thank you for Matt and Vivian. Guide them in the process, Lord. Help us get creative and have some fun with this. And I just pray that at the end of the day, you would be glorified. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Awesome. Well, thanks for connecting tonight, Matt, and uh, we'll see you later. All right. I'm going to kick things over to Robin now for the Discipleship Resource of the Week. Hey everyone, I wanted to just quickly show you the latest discipleship resource that got released, I believe, today. Lordship Not or uh, Lordship Not Labels from our first thing series last week. So last week we were talking about this idea that we want to uh, make sure that Jesus is Lord first before we submit to any other label. And there's a really important distinction between labels that are descriptive and labels that come attached with ideologies or a worldview and learning to distinguish 
how those labels affect us. So we've taken the teaching and we've condensed it into this sort of this easy to follow guide that walks you through really, uh, I think practically, are these labels having a bigger sway over me than they should? And uh, it's a really, really practical guide. So we start by identifying some of the practical ideas here uh, in terms of what are labels, where are they helpful, where are they not helpful, some of the problems that we can run into when they start to define our belonging, purpose, and then uh, we asked a set of questions that we can walk you through here. For example, does my commitment to a label distort or diminish the gospel? Which might seem like an obvious question, but hopefully when you walk through this question in some of the text here, you'll see that it's actually quite a subtle question. And then finally, uh, at the bottom here, we walk through an invitation where you give you an invitation to walk through one, adopting the labels that we are given in scripture that are really important to understanding ourselves, our Father in heaven, and the future that he has for us. And then at the bottom in yellow here, you can see that there's actually a bit of a process that you can walk through to identify uh, the labels, ask the questions, what kind of impact is it having on you, and then seek to be released from them and to walk in greater freedom than what Christ has. So I'd encourage you to head over to engage.livechurch.ca. If you're logged in, you just go to resources, top left corner, hit download. You don't even have to fill anything in, and it'll come straight to your Engage account. Or if you're not logged in, you can just head over to engage.liftchurch.ca and resources. Fill in your details and we'll send you automatically that resource. So that's the resource of the week. We're going to kick it over to Gordon for our daily Devo reading reflection. And then we'll be right back for part 2A of First Things series. We'll see you in a sec. Hi, church. My name is Gordon. I'm from McMaster Region C, and the verse I was particularly drawn to this past week was Genesis 3, uh, verses 22 to 24. So after the fall, Adam and Eve were driven into the wilderness, and reading through Genesis again, it's striking to me that from this point, how quickly everything goes wrong. Almost immediately, we see the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, and we see described the general corruption and evil to which the world um, had fallen to the point that, as God said in Genesis 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, and the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And I think as we look into the world around us, it is not hard to see that we are still living in the world described in Genesis chapter 6. And yet, as I think about it, I also feel encouraged because in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Placing Genesis and Revelation together and reminded that where we are right now is only the middle of things, and that God, who has reconciled us to him through Jesus, who bore the wrath that we deserve, will eventually restore all things, and that we do not need to fear what we see around us. All right, well, I'm excited to get into uh, the first of two parts in the second part of our First Things series. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, moving from opinions 
to objectivity, how opinions and treasuring and listening to opinions is a really good second thing and a really bad first thing. And this idea that we need to position objective truth as a first thing in order to properly listen to and take into account people's perspectives and opinions. Now, you might be wondering, what's the context for this? Well, I'll give you a, a bit of background here. I'm, I'm often asked and spend a great deal of my, my own time in, in, in my evenings, uh, in discipleship context, ask, sort of working through the question with people, why do we as a church need a position on XYZ issue? And the question might be phrased, well, can't we just agree? Or can't we create space for lots of differing perspectives on ABC issue or XYZ issue? Why, why do we need like to have clarity as a church? And in most cases, I, I think that this question of why can't we just agree comes from, a, I think, a genuine desire for unity, cohesion, and togetherness as a family. In other words, I don't think people are asking the question, why can't we just agree or why do we need a position for nefarious reasons? I think it comes from a genuine place, but it's got me thinking quite a bit, you know, if everything is just an opinion, what role does objective truth play? If everyone's perspective is valid, how do we arrive at any kind of clear understanding of what is true, right, and good? And at a deeper level, I've been sort of concerned about the state of our church and, to be honest, the broader Western church as well. Because if we are unable to make clear, conclusive statements, it seems like we're unable to make clear, conclusive statements on anything. And as I've wrestled with this question, I've come to see that in essence, our hesitancy or our, our, our tendency to avoid making conclusive statements, I believe this, this is true, this is right, this is good, our, our hesitancy to be bold in our assertion of truth is closely linked to a misordering of first and second things. We've taken good things and allowed them to become first things, which what we're discovering in the series is when you take a good thing a good second thing, and you make it a first thing, you lose the value of the second thing and the first thing, what ought to be the first thing. So in other words, we, we value people's perspectives. Perspectives and opinions are important. But when we elevate an opinion or a perspective to be the first thing, everybody's perspective is valid. If we make that a first thing, we lose our ability to treasure truth and if we lose our ability to treasure truth, we lose our ability to actually listen to people's perspectives because we have no way to evaluate, is this a good or bad perspective? Is this a valid or invalid opinion? In other words, truth is the basis to properly value opinion. So originally when I developed this and I was working on this, the, the thought was that this would be a one message uh, webcast on uh, this move from opinion to objectivity and would really talk about the role of scripture in informing truth. But as I was uh, working through developing the content, it became clear that, that actually there's a lot here and we're gonna break it into two parts. 
tonight we're going to focus specifically on the role of Scripture and how do we read Scripture in a way that allows us to arrive at truth and how do we sometimes allow second thing principles in reading Scripture to become first things and erode our ability to arrive at truth. And then next week we're going to look at some really nice and important uh Ideas, ideas like inclusivity, diversity, uh, a personal spiritual journey, things like that, and how those are good things, but they're second things. And they need to become ordered in our following of Jesus after more important first things. But we can't really get to those uh, second thing or those things that we're going to talk about next week until we go through this week talking about Scripture. So tonight is really part one of two in, sec, in part two of our first thing series. So this is like 2A, if you will. From opinion to objectivity, part one, handling scripture. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask four questions. Four questions that will help us evaluate the role of a second thing in reading scripture. But before I get into those questions, at a high level, what are we talking about tonight? Well, really simply put, we're talking about can we read scripture and arrive at a coherent, clear, and universal understanding of what is true? Is that possible? Now, we're going to ask that question in two parts, this week and next week. And what I hope you will see is that, yes, it is possible, but sometimes what we do is we take second things and we make them first things, and we, we misread Scripture, we misunderstand Scripture, and we, we sort of come to Scripture like, well, everybody's perspective is valid. And in short, what I hope to show you is that not all perspectives on Scripture are equally true. For example... At the highest level, there are some people who would say Jesus from Scripture didn't rise from the dead. And there are others who would say, yes, from Scripture, Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, not only can those logically not be true at the same time, uh, they're, not, they're also not equally valid interpretations of Scripture. Not all approaches to reading Scripture are the same, and not all of them are equally uh, excellent or true or good. Now, there's four ways that we can tend to misread Scripture or we can create an environment where all of a sudden it becomes fuzzy. Like, I don't know, can I really get to truth? So there's four, four areas we do this. The first is what I'm calling context. And the question is here. Does our appeal to interpretive principles such as historical context result in an inconsistent hermeneutic or interpretation of Scripture? You might be like, what the heck am I saying? Let me say that again. When we say or appeal to historical context or some other authorial intent or some other interpretive principle carelessly or without careful uh, and systematic approach, do we end up with an inconsistent understanding of Scripture? Now, the thing with second things is that they're good. They're not bad. So it's important that, for example, we take into account the historical context of a letter or the authorial intent of the letter or, uh, you know, the question of literary form of the letter. These are really important things to take into account. In fact, they're, they're, they're crucially important. But they're not of prime importance, and I want to show you why. 
the first thing we can do before we can, for example, appeal to historical context is develop the first thing of a consistent interpretive approach. So the first thing is not historical context or sort of an appeal to just, I'm just going to read scripture and, and then pull in this argument that I read on, on the internet. It's asking the question, do we have a consistent way of reading all of scripture? The first thing is not an appeal to historical context, but rather the development of a consistent hermeneutic. That has to come first. Do we have a consistent approach to reading scripture? Otherwise, we'll just pick and choose what we're going to do when and where. So, for example, we often find ourselves in these sort of contrived discussions about how to read scripture with questions like, well, what about historical context here? Or you used historical context there, and what about it over here? And questions like, should we take this figuratively or, or literally? The problem isn't that those are bad questions. The problem is that if we don't have a good, consistent approach to using these tools, these good tools can be used to manipulate the meaning of the text. So what I mean by this is that the truth is that if we're going to arrive at truth in Scripture, we need a consistent way of reading Scripture, a consistent way of interpreting Scripture so that the good tools that we have are used effectively and appropriately. I'm going to give you an example that's quite popular. You could find it on the internet with a quick Google, and uh, I've run into this quite a few times. I'll give you a really practical example. So an art, uh, something that's often said out there is that the, the primary audience or the primary issue being addressed in Romans chapter 1, which, by the way, Romans 1 is one of the most brilliant, powerful, and insightful passages on the human condition in all of Scripture. Like, it is truly just astoundingly brilliant. There's this argument out there that, well, Romans 1 can be sort of disregarded a little bit because it was addressing Roman fertility cults, an appeal to historical context. Here's the problem. With all due respect to the people saying this, there's absolutely nothing in the text itself to suggest such a claim. So some people will say, well, Romans 1 means not quite what it seems to mean because historical context of Roman fertility cults. But simply put, that's not what the text says. There's no discussion whatsoever in the text of Roman fertility cults. So it's taking the good second thing of historical context. Were Roman fertility cults and the sexual practices of the people of Rome pretty out of control? Yes. But were they part of what Paul had in mind when he was writing Romans 1? There's no reason to think that from the text. That's not what the text says. And so we're inconsistent in our hermeneutic if we just cherry pick when we're going to use historical context or not. The fertility cult uh, argument is a bad application of historical context because there's nothing in the text to support it or any of the other related texts. That's not to say that historical context is not important. It's really important, but we need to do it in a way that is responsible with the text. So when we're reading scripture, there's actually, uh, we've taught a whole course on how to do this consistently. 
uh, as a church. It's the How to Study Scripture course. You can go take it on Engage. It's a three-part course. But when we're teaching truth from uh, the scriptures, we've, we talk about there's this principle of six criteria that we can use. When we're trying to arrive at, is this true from scripture? There's six criteria we can test it against. And this allows us to be consistent in our application of, is this principle true or not? So in other words, instead of just cherry picking, well, I like this rule and I don't like this rule and I'm gonna explain this away, I'm gonna answer this with historical context or I'll say this on, oh, that's just literary. There's some principles we can follow. Number one, is it eternal? In other words, is the principle that we're looking at, is there good reason to believe from the text that it is not time-bound? It's not limited to a specific time and place. Is there a reason to believe that specifically from the text? Number two, is it universal? Is the audience in the text a specific situation and person, or is it spoken to a general uh, set of audiences? For example, Romans 1 is very clearly a general audience. Number three, is it drawn from what we, this principle we call seeing and understanding? What this means is, have we carefully studied the text and understood what it is saying? We must ask the question, what did the author intend for us to discover to be true? Not what do I want to be true, but what's in the text for me to discover? We must be careful to see and understand what's in the text. Number four, is the truth that we're testing here or the conclusion that we're coming to of the same subject matter that the author is intending? In other words, is this what the author was talking about? Number five, is the kind of response that the author has in mind, which they probably describe in many cases, is it the same kind of response that I'm concluding we should come to? And number six, this is so important. Does my conclusion of the truth support the primary thesis or truth in this uh, paragraph, chapter, section, and book? In other words, is this primary idea that I'm taking out of it part of a clear and systematic thinking in the book? So just some helpful criteria to help you go, not sort of cherry picking which hermeneutic strategy we're going to use, but start to systematically work through. This is just a quick primer on it. I'd encourage you to go deeper. So the first thing we can do is we can just cherry pick interpretive approaches that might be good, and we can end up actually ending, uh, having a really confusing reading of scripture. The second thing we can do, the second question is this. Does our search for a validating opinion facilitate confirmation bias in place of deep wrestling with the word? Let me say that again. Does our search for a validating opinion facilitate our own confirmation bias? That means that uh, when we go to outside sources, are they just telling us what we want to hear? And is that taking place of a deep wrestling with the word? So this is the second thing of outside perspectives. Okay, so what's, what do we need to say first here? Well, it is really important <laughs> that we listen to a broad range of voices in our lives. 
that we are familiar with diverse perspectives, those we agree with and those we do not agree with, that we read broadly and widely so that we're not narrow in our thinking. It's important that us being formed by Scripture, that in that process we at least have some understanding of how different people read or understand different pieces of Scripture. That's a good thing. It's important that we don't just put ourselves in an echo chamber where we only listen to the things that confirm us. So in this regard, the second thing of outside perspectives is really, really good. Listening to broad perspectives is a great second thing. We need to learn to leverage the broader Christian world, not just get stuck in our bubble to understand Scripture. But here's when this good second thing can become a bad first thing. When we begin to replace our own ability to read Scripture and instead depend on someone else's ability. If you uh, study church history, especially through uh, the Reformation and uh, uh, the Enlightenment of the, you know, sort of the starting in the 1400s and onwards, you'll know that the making Scripture accessible to all people to read in their own language was a huge, hugely important part of the development of the church. Why? Because God has given Scripture to us so that each of us can read by the grace of the Holy Spirit Scripture. The starting point for understanding in Scripture is not by reading other people's opinions or perspectives on Scripture, but actually by reading and wrestling with Scripture ourselves directly. It is not good when we spend more time listening to podcasts or reading books or even listening to what I have to say than we spend actually wrestling with Scripture. Why is this? Well, Scripture is hard. Scripture confronts the deepest parts of who we are. As Hebrews 4 says, it says this, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Meaning, Scripture has the ability to get inside us, deep, deep inside us, and, and, and do some real surgical work on our hearts. However, if we don't allow Scripture to do that work and we just go to an outside voice to find someone that confirms what we think, how do we know if that outside voice is not just telling us what we want to be true? So often we go to Scripture and we'll read something, I don't like that. So what we do is we go find a voice on the internet that tells us, well, I have a reading of Scripture that actually says it's, it's not really what it means, it's not really what it seems to say, it means this other thing. And we go, I like that. And when we do this, we can create a world where it's, well, I found an opinion on the internet that validates this perspective. Well, we have to come back to the first thing. Have we deeply wrestled with this text? Or are we using an outside perspective as a get-out-of-jail-free card to say, well, I don't really have to wrestle with it. This other person wrestled with it. I've come to my conclusion. And the real red flag here is when we read a piece of Scripture that should or ought in our deepest insights, we know it should challenge us. We know it should convict us, but we go to the Internet to find out that, uh, you know what, it, it doesn't really have to. 
the first thing of wrestling with Scripture ourselves must come first before we go to outside perspectives. Number three, third question. Does our, our desire to read our ideas into the text, our own cultural ideas into the text, result in a loss of scriptural integrity and objective meaning? So this is a pretty nuanced point that I'm going to make here, so you're going to have to listen carefully. The gospel, so the, I'm talking about the second thing here of, of cult, current issues or ideologies. So the gospel is transcultural. What it means, by, what I mean by that is that it, it can go from anywhere in the world to anywhere else in the world, and it can adapt to that culture. The gospel has never been constrained by borders, language, people group, ethnicity, tribe, tongue, anything like that. The gospel is transcultural, but it's also really interesting that it also embeds into culture. The gospel is only ever understood from the perspective of a culture. So in other words, the gospel is not just this abstract idea that exists out there in the ether. It's always understood from the lens of a language and a culture. And this is really powerful because it means that the gospel can go into any culture in the world, critique it, and then lead people to greater freedom and truth and ultimately a resurrected life in Jesus from within that culture. The fact that we can understand our current culture and our world because of the gospel is really, truly good news. It means we have a firm foundation. But there is a big difference between the gospel speaking to our culture and our culture speaking to the gospel. There's a big difference between the gospel speaking to our ideas and our ideas speaking to the gospel. This is a one-way street, not a two-way street. It is so important that we don't take our cultural ideas and read them into Scripture, but instead we read Scripture as best we can by the grace of the Holy Spirit to say, what is Scripture saying and how does this speak to culture? Uh, I'll give you an example. I re recently read an argument somewhere uh, from someone, again, very popular activist blogger on the internet. The internet is a dangerous place. And they were making the case that, well, Leviticus can be disregarded because uh, the rules in Leviticus were, quote, supporting a patriarchal society. And we've moved beyond that. We're, we're, we're better than that in the 21st century. There's two primary problems with this statement. Well, there's many, but there's, there's two big issues. Number one, the text can't give support to an idea that didn't exist at the time. So, for example, Leviticus couldn't have been supporting a patriarchal society because it didn't have the concept of a patriarchal society. That is a modern idea used to explain something. But if we're going to understand what is Leviticus saying, we have to do it on the terms that Leviticus or any other book was written in. We can't take an idea from our world and say, 
there it is in scripture. We have to say, what is scripture saying and why is it saying it? We have to let it speak for itself, not impute or take an idea from our culture and read it into scripture. So in short, the first big issue here is that scripture can't support an idea that didn't exist at the time that it was written. I used this example last week, but it's the same reason why Jesus couldn't have been any kind of ist. <laughs> the ists of a capitalist, socialist, communist, feminist, whatever ist that is. Why couldn't Jesus have been those ists? Because they didn't exist. Simply put, when we read an ideology into scripture, we're creating a context where opinion can rule because we're allowing what we believe to be true to be read into scripture. That's the first big problem. The second big issue in terms of eroding our ability to understand objective truth here is that when we read an explanation into scripture that isn't there itself, we're going to miss the actual reason that it's there. So we're going to start to see things that are not there, and we're going to miss the things that are there. So, for example, returning to my Leviticus example, the, the author says, well, we, we can disregard it because it was supporting, it was written to support a patriarchal society, which is absurd because that idea didn't exist. But it also misses the fact that in the scripture in question, the explanation was given two verses later. Why? Because God wanted holiness for his people. So the actual reason that the command was given was missed, and a reason that was not there was given. This is how opinion and outside perspectives and current issues can start to erode our reading of the truth. The first thing here is that the text has to speak for itself. We can't take ideas that are not in the text and read them as if they were. Now, for those of you that are philosophy students or have a philosophy background, you will know that there's a, been a vibrant discussion in the last 80 years in particular around this question of is there a meaning in a text and is the meaning, does it come from the reader or the author? As, as Christians, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. What that means is that the meaning of scripture is not determined by human origin. The meaning and truth of scripture is determined by God's sovereign purposes. God has embedded his meaning into the scriptures, and it's our job to find out what it is. But our culture says that we can read whatever truth we want into scripture. Well, that runs completely contrary to this fundamental notion that God has breathed into scripture. God has spoken truth into scripture. And therefore, we need to let scripture speak for itself without reading our own meaning, ideas, or ideologies into the text. So the first thing we've talked about here is the misapplication of second things principles and instead we have to go to the first thing of developing a consistent reading. The second thing we talked about was valuing outside perspectives but as a second source we need to read scripture ourselves as a first thing. 
The other thing we've talked about is that we need we can't read our meaning into scripture from our culture, context, or ideology. We need to instead allow God's God-breathed meaning to come from the text. And finally, number four for today, question, does our simplification of the message of the gospel result in a truncated, caricatured reading of scripture? This is the broad, this is the, the second thing of broad simplifications. Broad simplification. So what's good here? Well, the gospel is simultaneously brilliantly easy to comprehend and communicate, and yet profoundly deep. The fact that we can communicate the gospel in very simple language, such as God is love or Jesus saves, or other similar short pithy statements, is brilliant because they're not actually pithy, they're deep and profound and they're just laden with meaning. When we simplify the gospel down to reproducible statements, it makes it accessible across cultures, ages, stages, and intellectual capabilities. For example, I was discipling a number of years ago a gentleman actually in his, I would say, late 40s, early 50s, and he had been seriously abused as an infant and as a toddler. He had serious cognitive delays. Uh, his intellectual faculties were, were fairly underdeveloped, yet he was precious. And despite his unfortunate position in life and the odds being stacked against him, he was able to receive and understand the gospel. This is good news. The fact that we can simplify the gospel is, is a brilliant and beautiful thing. However, our broad simplifications of the gospel can go too far. When we reduce the gospel to a caricature or an oversimplification that doesn't take seriously the entire narrative of all of Scripture. What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is that when our good second thing of simplifying the gospel is not ordered behind the first thing that all of scripture is revealing the gospel, we can end up reading a truncated or partial gospel. In other words, not the real gospel. For example, does our understanding of the gospel seriously confront my own sinfulness? Humanity's sinfulness. Does my reading of the gospel seriously consider God's holiness, righteousness, and authority, his wrath and his justice, his love and his kindness? Does it take the entire narrative of the scriptures, all of them, Genesis to Revelation, into account? Does our gospel have a clear call, like the gospel of Jesus, to repentance? to acknowledging before the throne of an almighty God that we are broken? Does our gospel, like the gospel of Matthew, Peter, John, and the other disciples have a clear call to a life lived in denial of self, sacrificial service, radical generosity, and disciple making? Does our understanding of the gospel, like the gospel communicated in the pages of the story of the early church, place an urgency on the necessity of communicating the good news to everyone, regardless of age, stage, or tribe. Now, often what we will do is we 
will look at the breadth of what I've just described as the gospel and will reduce it too eagerly to say the gospel is just, well, it's all about love or it's all about sin or it's all about this or that one point issue as opposed to allowing those simplifications to spur us to go deeper into scripture to see the broadness and the depth of the gospel. If we oversimplify the gospel, then we will not end up really reading the gospel of Paul, Peter, John, or even Jesus. We must read all of scripture. The Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel brilliantly when he lays out his first thing. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. First importance. So what is Paul's first thing? His first thing. He's going to lay out the gospel. He says, guys, this is the first thing. If you want, what's the one thing? What's the one thing you can take to the bank? He says this. This is the gospel. This is the first thing. That Christ died for our sins, all of our sins, we're all sinners, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Paul's gospel includes a full recognition of the sinfulness of humanity, the full story of the scriptures, the entire thing, the bodily, earth-shattering glorious resurrection of Jesus and the revelation of God's loving kindness in sending his son in the first place. Even in this simplification, Paul doesn't truncate the gospel at God is just love or God is just uh, about justice. He paints a picture that is holistic and is rooted in all of scripture. If we are going to move from opinion to objectivity, we need to take seriously the breadth of the scriptures to develop a holistic theology, a holistic understanding that is consistent with Genesis to Revelation. That's why as a church we develop the moorings, the nine moorings of gospel fluency, trying to articulate that while the gospel is simple, yes, it also needs to be anchored deeply into the story of the scriptures, starting with God, basic doctrines like God, sin, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the church of, the church of Jesus, new creation, creation, our responsibility or our response to the gospel and so forth. It is these fundamental doctrines that anchor us in making sure that we do not have a truncated gospel so that we can be sure and confident and not blown about by the waves. So those are four things. Next week, we're going to tackle four additional ones. We're going to look at uh, inclusivity, diversity, uh, spiritual experience, and one other thing that uh, are going to be really exciting and looking forward to them. Good second things, bad first things. So that's it for today. Get your questions and we'll dialogue about this for a few minutes and then uh, we'll wrap it up. So get your questions, look forward to chat. Brooke will come back and join me and I'm gonna open my computer and see what you guys have to say.
stuff. <laughs> a lot of content. Yeah, a lot of Glad questions. Glad I broke, broke yeah. it into two weeks. Yeah, oh, yeah, certainly. Well, I was saying that earlier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's these times where my notes go digital instead of pen and paper, personally. Uh, but, yeah, just quicker. Um, but, yeah. Um, I see a question already. Um, I guess a two-part kind of here from Jesse. So, how can authorial intent not, intent not be the truth of the text? Can you give an example of a God uh, of a God breathed intent in Scripture that was not the intent of the author? Not trying to put you on the spot, but just trying to figure out how it could be appropriate to put aside the intention of the author to find truth. Um, so uh, maybe I poorly communicated or miscommunicated. Um, when we're reading scripture, we, we do take into account the authorial intent, like what the author intended, mm. trusting that they were led by the Holy Spirit in communicating what it is that they were communicating. Mm. Um, but it depends quite a bit on, I think, a broader kind of a hermeneutic approach to go like, what is the purpose of this text? Why is it here? What were they saying? What kind of ideas were they communicating? Why were they communicating them? So, for example, if it's discourse, for example, in the New Testament epistles where it's expounding truth, it's really important that we listen to the authorial intent there um, mm. because the authorial intent was, we believe, by, uh, influenced and led by, by God's Spirit. Mm. Uh, there's a good example here of, uh, that Nathan actually brings up, which is mm. David writing the Psalms, which he may, have known, may or may not known were going to be uh, Messianic prophecies. Mm. Um, that sort of um, part of a broader... I think, uh, how do I phrase this? A broader reading or a broader discussion about how do we understand the prophetic role in scripture um, mm. in that what we can do is this sort of this prophetic perspectives thing. So uh, David was talking largely about something that he was experiencing, but there was also an application of it into the messianic future. And mm. that's sort of unique to the prophetic uh, and understanding the role of reading uh prophetic type literature in the scriptures probably beyond the scope of a webcast conversation or at least this webcast conversation um i, I think the core here is that what we are saying is that when we're reading scripture we take into account what the author intended hmm. it, and this is important it couldn't mean or sh especially when reading a sort of discourse or when there's truth being communicated or ideas being communicated, it couldn't mean something the author didn't intend or couldn't have intended. It, it, the truth that comes out of it must uh, correspond to the truth the author intended. So hopefully that that helps a little bit. Um, I feel like you're kind of going. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of processing, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Sure. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, I read recently uh, an article that was suggesting that in Galatians where Paul talks about, um, he, he says there will be neither male nor female, mm. um, and that therefore Paul was discarding or was alluding to the discarding of, of the idea of gender in scripture. Mm. The problem is, is that there's no possible way that Paul could have meant that. Um, as uh, first of all, as like a an or, like 
a well-studied Jew in the first century, there's just no conceivable world where Paul would have meant gender didn't exist. Hmm. So to suggest that that's what he could have meant, A, is a complete misreading of the text, uh, but it is also a complete abuse of authorial intent because he couldn't have meant that. Hmm. Uh, so just an example. Hmm. So um, I see there's... Some discussion happening here. I encourage you guys to get your questions in. If I've said anything that's confusing people, please drop it in. I want to make sure I haven't lost too many people along the way. It's pretty detailed this week. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh. hmm. I think I think there's yeah. a conversation here where Jesse and Kirsten are getting stuck, stuck into the weeds a little bit. So, mm. Um, mm. love you guys. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, Laura, can you give an example where historical context can and should be used to interpret scripture? Yeah, so I would say historical context should always be taken into account. We should always ask, what was the situation or audience in this case? Mm -hmm. So a good example is um, uh, is uh, the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah uh, is beautiful passage. It says, I know the plans I have for you, says ah. the Lord, plans to prosper and, and, and so forth. And people love reading this as like a good feel-good <laughs> statement. I, and I, I think it's a bit of a misreading of the text because the historical context was God's punishment um, to his people leading them off into captivity. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, even though you're going into captivity and it's going to be really miserable for several generations, one day you will prosper. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it was a kind of a renewal of the covenant. And so that was both a historical context that historically happened, um, but also a biblical context. You have to read the broader biblical context. Another good example is uh, a lot of Jesus' interactions with uh, the Roman rulers. Uh, doesn't There's not that much that explicitly gives us the context for what was happening with the Roman rule of the, uh, the Jews mm -hmm. in the first century, but there's a lot of historical context. For example, we know, uh, for example, when Pilate... Uh, crucifies Jesus as king of the Jews, that there was a long line of false messiahs or failed revolts among the Jews, and Jesus was just the latest one in, in the line of them. Mm -hmm. And so that historical context helps us better understand uh, how sarcastic and cruel Jesus' crucifixion was, but also uh, that from the perspective of the Romans, he was just another, another rebel, right. um, and why they were so baffled with the subsequent rise of it. Mm. Um, so there's a couple examples where we can take what's outside of Scripture to better understand what's in Scripture, um, but we can there's, we can only do it when it sort of helps us better understand the meaning that's there mm. and is supported in the text. So for I'll give you a really good example, or maybe an example. It talks about uh, the zealots, mm. and we don't really know. Like Scripture doesn't tell us what the zealots are, but we can uh, in the disciples. Um, you know, there were disciples that were zealots. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know from historical context that that means that they were armed or potentially violent revolutionaries trying to overthrow the Roman rulers. Um, so that's not contrary to the text. It's taking something that's in the text and then helping to explain what's there using historical context. Mm. What we can't do is say like, well, because of this historical thing that's not in the text, read meaning that's not there. Yeah. So it should, when we read historical context, it should be supported by the text. If awesome. that makes sense. It does, yeah. No, I like that, yeah. That provides a lot of clarity for sure. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, I think it just kind of brings me back to what you're talking about earlier. Um, like when we're approaching text and ensuring that like we're not coming to text like asking about culture, but like we're actually um, looking at um, like the text itself. Um, and then, yeah, like kind of culture will say whatever, but we're, we're coming first, looking at the text. Um, yeah, just not reading whatever culture we read into the passage. Yeah, I thought it was interesting kind of um, like the last, um, you know, bit of uh, content that you're talking about in terms of simplifying, like, and just that, that's a, I think a, a subtle one, but um, it's definitely very present um, for sure. I'd be curious to hear from even people in the chat a little bit, like what kinds of gospel oversimplifications have you observed in your day to day? Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of things do you hear where like that sounds true mm. but might have some um, some negative consequences or negative conclusions if it's not uh, checked I'd be mm-hmm. curious to see yeah uh, a classic would be like God loves everyone well yes God loves everyone but the story is mm-hmm. it probably scripture has a lot more to say about how God loves everyone than maybe we would immediately understand so mm-hmm. for sure love wins yeah love wins that's a that's a classic mm-hmm. classic example. love does win but what is love and we're actually going to talk about that in two weeks mm-hmm. um, the first thing of uh, moving from a, a sort of a cultural understanding of love to a biblical understanding of love um, oh. and we are we're gonna we're gonna go after love wins because love does win, but it depends how we define love. Hmm. Love is not a self-defined word. So I'm really excited to get into that. Um, yeah, Abby's on that there. Uh, yeah, the prosperity mm-hmm. gospel. Yeah, God wants Eight to bless point. you. God wants to, God wants to <laughs> yeah. give you what you want. Well, uh, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe he wants to, yeah, um, talk about an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Sure. That's really good. I'd love to hear if there's any others that people want to put in there. It'd be helpful. <laughs> Don't hurt me. <laughs> Did I just... Is that... Never mind. <laughs> Rick, uh, yeah. People being good, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Morals, yeah. 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 Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of that. A really interesting one is the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah. Really interesting question because it assumes that all people are good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually, we're going to be getting into that conversation in July. Okay. So, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, let me know if there's any other questions coming in here, guys. I want to take some time. I know tonight was pretty meaty, pretty heady. Mm-hmm. So... There's a few more people typing here, so. Mm-hmm. I hope that the core idea that people walk away from is that we can, can we can come to truth. Mm-hmm. That God's intent in Scripture is that we do arrive at the truth, mm-hmm. and we don't just get stuck in opinion land. Yeah. Um, that's a horrible place to be. So. Yeah. 
All right, lots of people typing and then not typing, so. <laughs> um, let's see here, so one more comment. Mm, that's a good question. Uh, How do you help yeah. someone wrestle with the text versus seek out a palatable view from someone else? Mm. So it depends is the short answer. Um, a few strategies that I try to walk through that I find helpful and have been helpful in my own journey on this is that I find what can be a good thing to do is when somebody is like stuck on a text or they're looking for an alternate reading of a text and you're like, I, I think there is to sort of go around the text. So take, take the text off the table for a minute and try to go back to first principles. Mm. Because often what happens is the misreading of a text or seeking a more palatable view is requires a breakdown of some, some first principles. Mm. So if you can kind of work through some of those first principles first, that can be really helpful. Um, so sort of try to see, okay, like, do we have our core theology right? Can we agree on some core theology? Mm. If we can't agree on that core theology, then we can come back to the text and go, well, can, this doesn't seem to fit. Like mm. what you're saying you believe over here doesn't seem to fit over here. Right. The other thing that can be really helpful is focusing on uh, a lot of times people will seek something more palatable because they don't, they haven't yet seen God's kindness in the thing that they're struggling with. Right. So, for example, it's, I don't want to give up my money or my time or my identity or whatever. So, I'm going to read scripture in a way that allows me to not do that. Hmm. But if we can help people see that the call of Jesus, the commands of Jesus are always kind hmm. and for our benefit. And help them walk through not just hey, do the thing or listen to the scripture, mm. but actually see why it's better. Mm. See why it's life-giving. And I think taking a hope-filled, generous, and kind approach mm. uh, is often missing uh, when we take a legalistic, just read the text approach. Right. Even when the, the, the commands are very clear, do not do this, don't do this, they're there for our benefit. Mm. God loves us. He's given our word as a light to our feet so that we don't stumble in darkness. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think it's mm. important that we really work to find out how can we communicate why this is good news, not right. just the bad news. Because often our rejection of a text is rooted in the bad news. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to summarize, first things, look at their theology. Try to see if you can kind of work from first principles. Uh, and then the second thing would be try to come at it from the good news perspective and mm. uh, the life-giving yeah. yeah, and I was going to say, and kind of on that note, it just makes me think about the fact that at the end of the day, like, how relational God is and how, like, this week we were talking about, like, that, um, like, God's word is alive and, it, like, it's a living word. And so that's, like, of course, it's saturated in prayer. Like, you're praying for this person that you're um, discipling kind of to spend more time and wrestle through that and just for their heart, like, for them to experience, like, God and yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's a really important piece that you highlight, which is that it has to be a prayer-saturated uh, process. Uh, Nathaniel asks a great question here. Also, Morgan, Cheap Grace, 100%. Some Bonhoeffer references there, always getting me, getting me going. 
If someone professes to be a Christian, how important is it to correct a belief that, I like the phrasing here, mm. maybe isn't quite an errors in territory, but you know, it's, it's definitely playing with the line. Um, you know, it's partially correct, uh, you know, and then you, you highlight here that because I find these cases usually come from a difference in a more mm. fundamental belief, and that takes a long time to dissect or unpack. Mm. So, um, I would say uh, it depends on uh, trajectory. So this is where I think discipleship wisdom really comes into play. We can't chase like every little like, you know, they said something that wasn't quite right and we come down on them like, Poof. I think what we want to be careful to do is discern, is their belief leading, leading, actively leading them away? Or is it just sort of a, was it like, did they misspeak or... Maybe they're just sort of dabbling a little bit. And I think our approach should be proportional to the, the, the degree of integration of that bad belief, if that makes sense. Okay. So if somebody, for example, just sort of like misspeaks on, for example, their definition of the Trinity, a pretty important doctrine, mm. but they just muddle their words because it's hard to get it right. We don't need to come down on them like, Poof. Hey, we need to have a serious conversation, crucial conversation about. I'm gonna say, hey, like, did you mean this or did you mean that? Mm. I think of clarifying. But if they start to embrace an idea and that idea starts to become foundational to the theology, then we have to have deeper conversations. Mm. So I think being proportional to it. The other part is, I think, in our discipleship journey, recognizing that we take a long term view, not a short term view. Now, mm. this says two sides to the coin. The long-term view means that is this long-term going to take them away from Jesus? Like we look at the implications in the long run, but we also are patient to walk it out in the long term. So um, mm. I think, yeah, I, Adam highlights something here. Does their lifestyle confirm a heretical belief? In other words, how integrated is this belief? Mm. Is it? Is it just like an idea they're wrestling with or is it starting to become an integrated part of their person? If it is, then we have to engage it more actively. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. There was an idea floating around our church maybe uh, four or five years ago, uh, four years ago maybe, um, that bordered on, on heresy. It was like pretty weird, messed up stuff, pretty niche. It was kind of a case of like trying to find some unique angle on scripture Anytime something's like, we have the angle, I'm kind mm. of like, eh, do you? Angle what? <laughs> angle. Uh, and so we actually, um, as a leadership team, did come down on it and, and requested that the Simple Church stop using the content. Mm. Um, and we did engage uh, after a, a fairly lengthy process. So there is time and place to say no. Mm. Um, but we try to be careful about right. doing that. So. Okay. Uh, Levi, how do we determine truth on topics that are more modern and aren't directly mentioned in the Bible without taking the author's intent out of context? For example, marijuana use, masturbation, other hot topics that were not an issue back then or at least weren't mentioned. I think we'd be pretty, we can be pretty sure that, interestingly, uh, there are two examples that you highlight, marijuana and masturbation, that I'm pretty sure that those are not modern things. <laughs> um, I'm sure that they that they were part of the... the mm -hmm. uh, cultural framework of, uh, of biblical times. Hmm. And so just a, a funny thing about that. Hmm. Um, so a few thoughts here. The first thought is that I think we can go to scripture in Ecclesiastes where it says there's nothing new under the sun. Like 
we sometimes like to think that modern society is like super developed and we're like the bomb. But the human condition hasn't really changed. Hmm. So yes, we have more technology. Uh, yes, we have more you know, understanding of how the world works. But I don't know that we've really progressed in our understanding of human nature. Hmm. And so in this regard, scripture really is timeless because the human condition isn't going to change. Hmm. Um, humans were selfish, still are selfish, and will continue to be selfish. Hmm. So I think the first part of this is to say that there is nothing new under the sun. And so I would caution against a Western 21st century arrogance that says we have progressed beyond scripture. Mm. That's really dangerous. And now I think that you're asking, uh, uh, I, I think an interesting question in that there are things that scripture doesn't speak directly to. Yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't speak directly to, um, marijuana use masturbation it doesn't speak directly to pirating mm -hmm. you know digital content uh or uh navigating city bylaws or mm -hmm. there's a whole host of things it doesn't speak yeah. to um, <laughs> because it's not a rule book <laughs> yeah. a lot of things that don't speak to things mm -hmm. uh and the core here is that we have to go back and try to, to distill out those those truths from scripture that hit the criteria that we established eternal universal uh um what are the, the other six criteria those six truth criteria and try to build our response on a concrete set of truth criteria mm. um so for example it's easy to say well scripture doesn't speak to marijuana therefore i doesn't matter what i do well that's not true because there is truth in scripture that tells us how we ought to respond so there's a eternal universal truth that we're to be sober-minded mm -hmm. to be an integrated person not to change our state of mind in order to uh, have a better social experience or whatever and so going back to the eternal universal moral principles of scripture mm -hmm. and then applying them um, so yeah it's good that's helpful for sure yeah practical. Um, Maybe next time, maybe another time, if there's sufficient uh, public demand, we can tackle. We actually are going to do marijuana uh, and mm. other substances. We have a guide that we're working on for that. Cool. Um, and maybe we can tackle masturbation sometime. Be happy to do that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Feel like we're uh, probably wrapping, up. wrapping up. Yeah, in terms of our discussion and some of the wrestling. <laughs> um, cool. Cool content so yeah uh tomorrow night make sure uh you check out the welcome week brainstorming session seven o'clock and uh yeah i think that's that's it for uh tonight's uh webcast cool thanks guys have a great week we'll see you later part two next week we're gonna look at some good stuff mm -hmm. it's gonna be good love you guys